Good morning. Did you notice the happy family in our passage this morning? You're like, you mean the family just experienced one brother murdering the other brother? That family? Yes, that happy family. If you look at the first four verses, their life probably doesn't look a lot different from the one that you hoped for. Adam and Eve have a son named Cain. And Eve gives glory to God and says that the Lord has helped her and blessed her. And then she's blessed with another son named Abel. Two healthy boys. Now a family of four. Life's just tooting right along. So maybe, maybe life outside the garden won't be so bad after all. And then we see these two sons grow up. One becomes a farmer and the other becomes a shepherd. They both had good jobs. They both worked hard. Both sons believed in God and you'd find them at church on Sunday mornings, if you will. Both engaged in acts of worship as we see them bringing their offerings to the Lord. Up until this point, everything seems fine and dandy. Does their life look really all that much different than yours? Does their life really look all that much different than the thousands of families we are surrounded by in this community? But we know that's not the end of the story, right? What starts off happy ends in homicide, murder in the first degree. And the story reads like the first Dateline special in history. With the headline, Happy Family Next Door, Destroyed by Murder, tonight at 8 p.m. And then the family photo turns red and those cheap special effects rip the picture down the middle. One son is murdered, the other son becomes a fugitive, a mother is grieved, a family is torn apart. All the while, God's words in the garden echo in this fallen world. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Do you have any idea the evil that's at work in this world? And it's so fitting that this is the first story that we're given to show life outside of the garden. Because it's a story where everything looks so great on the outside, but underneath the surface, there's dark, malevolence, violent forces at work. It's fitting because of how prone we are to evaluate our lives based on external circumstances. All the while, the evil that's at work in our lives so easily goes unnoticed, unseen, and overlooked. And like we said last week, from the very beginning, the Bible wants you to see and know what's wrong with the world. Because when the world tries to answer that same question, it starts from a completely different place. And it's subtle. So subtle it often goes overlooked, unnoticed, and unseen. Because when the world tries to answer that question, if you listen closely, it starts with the belief that humanity is inherently good. 
So evil exists because of bad environments, broken homes, lack of education, poverty. It says that these are the things that drive people to do evil. So if we want to eradicate the evil in the world, then we need to address those areas. We need to address the home and family life. We need to offer better education. We need to offer safer environments. We need to provide employment and to remove poverty. And if you just fix those things, then people won't be driven to do evil. And the Bible would respond by saying, really? So you're saying then that if you could just get someone's life to look like Cain's, then everything's going to be okay. He didn't come from a divorced, broken family. His family was intact. His family believed in God. He was raised with a sense of morality. He worked hard and had a productive job. He didn't live in poverty and had plenty left over to give. Is that really all that it takes? The world doesn't have an answer for Cain's. And God confronts us with this story. And he asks us, do you really understand what has been let loose into this world? If you want to see and understand what's wrong with the world, then you need to see and understand the reality of sin. You have to see how it operates. You have to see how it works and how it deceives. You have to understand this war that you're in. My grandfather was a World War II veteran. He enlisted in 1943, and he was a really good mechanic. And so he thought that when he enlisted, he applied for the Corps of Engineers. He drew the short stick, and they put him in the infantry. So he was going to the front lines. The first place that he went was to fight against the Germans in North Africa. And he says that the first battle that he was in was an absolute dogfight. He spent two years in war. And he said that was one of the most vicious battles that he was in. The Germans were hitting them with everything that they had. They were hammering them on the front lines, and they were particularly focused, putting all of their energy at the spot on the front lines where my grandfather was. And at that point in time, how did you fight the war? Well, you hold the line at all costs. That is your job. That's why you exist in that moment, is to hold the line. Because once it breaks, what stops the enemy from continuing right on? You hold the line. And they got to a point where they couldn't hold the line anymore, and they had one option left. And in that moment, the only option you have is to call the artillery in on top of yourself. You literally ask to drop bombs on yourself. And they said that they didn't, know how they didn't know how close the Germans were, but they knew they were close because it was at night. And he said whenever they started to hear the bombs coming and the bombs started to drop, they started to jump into the foxholes for cover. And he said that that's when they realized how close the Germans were, because when the bombs started to drop, the Germans started jumping into the same foxholes with them. And his first experience was hand-to-hand -hand combat in a four-foot hole. That was his introduction to war. It's also how the Bible introduces you to the war that you're in. 
You have an enemy that jumps into all of those places that you look to for safety. It jumps into all of those places you hope will protect you. In this next part of this grand story, we find Cain and Abel. And it's one that gives us a closer look at the power and the nature of sin. And God wants us to see, once again, how it operates, how it hides, and how it deceives. So imagine we see these two grown men, Cain and Abel, both showing up at church on Sunday morning at East of Eden Community Church. It's a thriving megachurch. And they both bring their offerings unto the Lord And they engage in acts of worship. Cain brings his produce. Abel brings his sheep. And everything looks great on the outside. But God doesn't look on the outside. He looks at the heart. The Lord accepted Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's. Why? Well, on the surface, we might think it's just by looking at the gifts. It's because they offered different gifts. So God accepted Abel's sheep, but God rejected Cain's produce. So does this mean that God hates vegetables and vegetarianism is evil? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Does not our Lord say, leave your quinoa at home? Bring me the fat portions. No, that's not the point. But you could make one out of that, couldn't you, right? But in reality... They both offer different gifts. Why? Because they're offering the fruits of their labor. They're offering the fruit of their labor. They're offering what they have. One's a farmer, one's a shepherd. They're offering the fruit of their vocation and their work. And the Bible uses a lot of different terms to describe all sorts of different offerings that someone could make to the Lord. And the term that it uses here to describe these offerings is that it's the type of offering that one would give to express their devotion. It's symbolic. It's like that ring that you gave to your spouse. It's a symbol of your covenant fidelity and commitment to them. It's an expression of their place in your life. And so why then is it that we see both of them expressing this devotion, both of them giving what they have, but God accepts one and not the other? Well, to understand that, we have to look where God looks. We can't look at the surface. We have to look at the heart. And Hebrews 11 helps us do it. Because it says that by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. God accepted Abel's gift because it was by faith, but then you might just think, you know, faith in what? How could Abel offer a gift in faith? What did he have faith in? It was the promise of God. It was his promise. And it was the only promise they had that we saw from last week, from Genesis 3.15. It was the very promise that Adam and Eve brought into this broken world with them. It was the promise that one day God would provide a son that would crush the head of the serpent and he would destroy sin and evil. Abel's gift, Abel's faith, recognized that they were in a war and he believed God's promise to deliver them. Abel trusted the story that God would tell in this world. 
But there's more that we need to see in this gift because it also says that Abel brought the firstborn of his livestock. He brought the firstborn and their fat portions. Now, part of what that means is in the ancient world, they didn't have physical money. So how, what did they use for currency? Well, for the farmer, it was their produce. For the shepherd, it was their flock. That's how they traded and provided for themselves for what they needed. So when it says that Abel gave his first fruits, it's telling us something very important about God's place in his life. Because when it says that he gave the firstborn, he was giving in a way that put himself in a vulnerable position. Because he was giving without knowing how things were going to turn out for him that year. Abel didn't wait to see how many sheep were born to him, and then he decided what he was going to give. He wasn't thinking, well, let me see how much I bring in this month, and then we'll go from there. He didn't say, well, let me get myself squared away, and then I'll give the last one. It's a sheep in the end. What's the difference? God will understand, right? No. Abel gave the firstborn by faith because he trusted that, one, God would provide for the whole world, but he also trusted that God would provide for him. Abel's gift expressed how God was the main character in his story. It was a gift that said, I need you a lot more than I need this baby lamb. I put my, ha- my life into your hands. And the Lord accepts that sacrifice. That is an offering that brings him joy and delight. But not Cain's. Cain brought his offering to God and it was rejected. So maybe the first thing that we should learn about sin and how it operates is that it can give the appearance of righteousness and obedience. Evil can look so good on the outside. But notice there's no mention of first fruits. It's just an indefinite and offering that we're given. Maybe Cain waited until the end of his harvest to decide how much to give. Maybe he kept the best portions for himself. Whatever it was, either way, Cain's offering was not given in faith because he's after something different than Abel. And that fact reveals itself in how he responds because Cain, Cain gets angry. He gets exceedingly angry. And we're not told exactly what it was that caused him to get so angry. But the context is probably just something as simple as seeing his brother blessed and that began to gnaw away at his heart. He's jealous. He's envious. And it says that his face fell, which is just the Bible's way of saying that he had turned inward upon himself. He was sulking and stewing in self-pity. Why? Because life didn't turn out the way that he wanted. And his response just points back to his heart that made these offerings to God in the first place. It wasn't to get God. It was to get something from God. He wasn't actually committed to God's purposes. He was really just committed to his own. Which means that Cain's offering was not an expression of devotion. What was it? It was a transaction. It was a negotiation. He came with the expectation of repayment. Abel's offering said, God, I give myself to you. But Cain's offering said, God, I want you to give to me. 
God had simply become a means to an end, an accessory to his life to help him create the life that he wanted for himself. Cain is just simply the world's first consumeristic worshiper. And when he didn't get what he wanted, when life didn't go his way, he got angry and his face fell. And just to further that point, we know that Cain wasn't really after God. Why? Because that's exactly what Cain got. It was God. God literally comes to him and has a conversation with him. And again, how does God come to Cain? He comes with grace. God comes to Cain in the same way that God came to his father, Adam. He comes asking questions. Cain, why are you so angry? Why are you so upset? And he's not looking for answers. He's guiding Cain. He's leading Cain. He's counseling Cain to help him understand something important about his life and to stop looking at everything on the outside and to finally look where he needs to look on the inside at his own heart. God asks these questions. He's inviting Cain into a deeper relationship with him. And he says, Cain, if you don't do well, will you not be accepted? And another way of looking at that is that he's saying, Cain, if you do well, will not your face be lifted? Cain, will you let, allow me to lift your countenance? Will you delight and will you trust in me? But he also gives Cain a warning. Because he says, Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more vivid picture of sin in the entire Bible than that verse right there. Because it describes sin using the language of a predator. It's a predator. It's crouching. It's hiding. It's circling you. It's hunting you. And it's waiting for the right moment. Do you see sin in that way? As a malicious malevolent, violent power that's actively, patiently waiting to devour you. If not, you don't understand what's wrong with the world. Because that's exactly what it wants to do. Because when God says that its desire is for you, that language should sound familiar. Because that's the exact same language that God uses in chapter 3 when he tells Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. Now think about that. Sin's desire for you is this dark, shadowy oneness and union with you. So what's God telling Cain? He's saying, don't you know your real problem? Don't you see this war that you're in? It's not with Abel. It's not your lack of blessing. It's not because you didn't get what you want. It's not because life isn't turning out the way that you hoped for. Your problem is that sin in your own heart. And if you're unwilling to face it, if you're unwilling to see it for what it is, it's going to devour you. It's going to consume you. God is gracious to Cain. He's inviting him into a deeper understanding of the world, into a deeper relationship with him. But did you notice Cain doesn't actually respond? He completely ignores God's words to him, and he's silent. His heart was already hardened, and he decides that he's going to be the main character in this story, and God is simply getting in the way of what he wants. 
And then we get to verse 8. Cain invites Abel out to the field. And it's there that he slaughters his own brother. And what started off just as simple as something as jealousy and envy, disappointment, well, that eventually grows, it blossoms, and it bears fruit. And what God said became true. He was devoured by sin, and he became one with evil. He hated the righteousness that he saw in his brother, and he killed him. Now, if, if anything should help reveal the power of sin, it's the fact that the serpent talked Adam and Eve into sinning. But once sin took root, Cain wouldn't let God talk him out of sinning. He chose his own way. And behold, the power of sin. It's a predator that's constantly lurking and looking to consume you. It hides, it waits, and then it pounces. For Cain, it hid behind his self-pity that had turned his focus inward on himself. It hid behind his stewing and all of his disappointments and frustrations and unmet expectations. It hid behind his finger-pointing, convincing him that Abel was his real problem. It hid behind his solutions and the ways that he thought that he would take matters into his own hands and deal with his own problems. Sin hides, it waits, and then it pounces. Do you see how sin operates? I read an article a number of years ago about a computer virus that up until that point, the world had never seen anything like it. They found it at a nuclear reactor in Iran where they were enriching uranium. And the reason they found it was because that nuclear reactor was completely broke. It completely shut down. It became uh, unworkable. And so when they did an investigation, they found out it was because of this virus. And so they started to study this virus, and they realized that it was quite unlike anything they'd seen. Part of it is because this nuclear reactor was on a closed system, right? They don't just connect it to the Internet for hackers to take over for security purposes. So the only way you could get a virus in there was it had to sneak in. Somebody got the virus in, and they uploaded it into the computer system. But what did this virus do? What made it unique is that it waited. It was actually designed and programmed to hide itself within the computer network. What was it waiting for? It was waiting for all of the conditions to be met. It was waiting for all of the right conditions to be in place. And then once those conditions were met and that uranium was started to be enriched, it turned on. It went to work. It took control of the reactor, and it broke it. And sin operates in the exact same way. It sneaks in, and it waits for the right conditions, and then it goes to work. It waits until the end of that really long day. It waits until you're alone on a business trip. It waits until you feel the demands of your job are overwhelming. It waits until we feel unloved by a friend or unnoticed by our spouse. It waits until we're discontent with life and we're frustrated about how it's going and all of our circumstances. It waits until all we can see is what we don't have and what we want and we daydream about what could be and should be. It waits until the right moment and then it goes to work. 
it starts to take over. And we become convinced of what we want and what we should have. We become convinced of what will satisfy us. We feel certain about that we know how to handle the situation. We become convinced that the problem is out there somewhere. It's not in here in my heart. And all the while, God's words don't cross our minds. We ignore them like Cain, and we determine the way that we should go. And thus the union is complete and sin bears its fruit. But here's the thing. Just like we see with Cain, our sin demands a sacrifice too. Lust demands the sacrifice of intimacy with your spouse. Overworking demands the sacrifice of your time and presence with your family. Anger demands the sacrifice of our relationship with our kids. Pride Pride demands the sacrifice of our friendships. That list goes on and on and on and on. Because where there is sin, sin will demand its own sacrifices. So what can we draw from this? I think one thing I've come to realize is that our greatest struggle as sinners isn't so much the fight against sin itself. Our greatest struggle is not minimizing it. Our greatest struggle is seeing our sin for what it really is and taking it seriously. Why? Because that's what it does. It crouches, it hides, and it's even harder to see when you're not looking for it. It's like this. The people that I've seen that are truly awakened to the sin in their life, and they're awakened to the sinful patterns, the sinful responses to their circumstances, all of their sinful habits and behaviors and ways of coping and dealing with life. When they see it for what it is and they finally see the damage that it's causing, something else happens too. They also begin to find new desires for new life. They begin to find a new energy that sets their hearts uh, walking in new obedience to fight back against that sin in a conscious way, and they walk in repentance and active prayer and dependence upon God. Is that easy? Not at all. In no way. But that's also when they begin to feel the power and strength of God at work within them. And they begin to find a newfound sense of freedom and strength that results from the Spirit's work in their life. The harder part is not minimizing it. The harder part is actually admitting that it's there in the first place and seeing it for what it is. The harder part is not helping it hide by all the ways that we minimize it. We minimize it by thinking it's something we can handle. Or it's not as bad as it could be. Or it's not as bad as it used to be. We minimize it by categorizing it and thinking, you know, it's just a little something I struggle with. Or it's just my personality. Or it's just... That's just how I was raised. We help it hide behind our justifications. I'm not materialistic. I only shop on the clearance rack. I'm not greedy. I'm just saving for a rainy day. I don't have a problem. I could quit anytime I want. We minimize it when we compare ourselves to others and we think, you know, look at them. At least I don't struggle like that. And what are we doing? We're looking to protect ourselves. And sin is the enemy that jumps into all of those places that we try to protect ourselves. And it's there that we are devoured. 
What's this story doing? It's inviting you to see reality. From the very beginning of this biblical story, it wants you to see the reality of sin in this world and in your life and to take it seriously. But maybe if you're honest, perhaps you've already minimized it this morning. Because it's so easy to compare yourself to Cain and think, sure, I struggle with some things, but at least I'm not a murderer. And we look at this story in the same way we watch a Dateline special. And we say, man, there sure are some evil people in this world. But don't do that. Because this story is your story. Cain's problem is our problem. We are all Cain. How so? Well, this story of Cain and Abel establishes a pattern that we are going to see throughout the rest of this story of the scriptures, where the unrighteous brother hates and kills the righteous brother. We see the seed of the serpent waging war against the seed of the woman. And you can follow that pattern all the way through the Old Testament, through Joseph and his brothers, through Moses and Korah, through Israel and the prophets. And eventually you come to its ultimate final expression in Jesus. Jesus, who took on flesh and became one of us. He came to Israel. He came to humanity as our brother. But he was rejected, mocked, hated, and killed. And at his trial, he was determined to be the problem. His death was demanded. And they cried out, Let his blood be on us and on our children. We will take responsibility for it. And once again, the unrighteous brother killed the righteous brother because sin demands its own sacrifice. But then when you get to the book of Acts, what do we see? Well, in the first five sermons of the book of Acts, As the gospel is going out for the first time in this world, you see this constant refrain that echoes this story. What do they say? They say, you crucified and killed Jesus. You denied the righteous one and killed the author of life. You rejected him and crucified him. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. Jesus, the righteous one, whom you betrayed and murdered. That was the introduction into the gospel story was to understand their place in it as the unrighteous brother that killed the righteous brother. And their story is our story. And so, yeah, there is a part of us that says it's easy to look at it and say, you know, at least I'm not like Cain. At least I'm not a murderer. But thinking that is just simply providing the tall grass for sin to hide in your life. Because to receive this gospel means we receive this story is our story To come to the foot of this cross, we come with the confession, I am Cain. The same sin in his heart is the same sin in my heart. My sin killed the Lord of glory. Isn't that what we sing in the hymn? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But this I know with all my heart. I know that it is finished. The story gives us an awakening perspective to the gospel by awakening us to the reality of sin. And the invitation to us is no different than it was to those hearers in the book of Acts. Why? Because that invitation 
understanding this is our story is not about your condemnation. It's about your salvation. It's about seeing our sin for what it truly is so that we might see God for who he really is. And even in this horrific story of Cain and Abel, we see a glimpse of this God who was rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, and we're already given the seeds of our redemption. Because when God comes to Cain after he kills Abel, he comes again with the question, Cain, where's your brother? Giving him another opportunity to stop hiding and to confess, but Cain gives his famous response, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And then God says, Cain, why does your brother's blood cry out to me from the ground? God is saying that Abel's blood cries out to him for justice and for vindication. And God hears it because he is a God of justice who doesn't overlook evil. And he says, Cain, your brother's blood calls out to me for justice and for judgment. But then what do we see God do? How does he respond? He's merciful. He's merciful. Yes, Cain is driven out to wander. And God says that he will be a fugitive on the earth. But what does that mean? It means that he will be one that does not receive the full justice that he deserves. And even then, in God's grace, Cain says his punishment is more than he can bear. And he says that he'll be killed if anyone finds him. But God says no. And instead, he puts a mark on Cain, and he says that no one will attack him. He puts a mark on him so that no one will be like Cain towards Cain. God protects him. God cares for him. But then he gives Cain a wife and a son. He gives him a family. We see God be merciful to the sinner. He's merciful to the murderer. And that's good news for us. Because like I said last week, God tells the story of redemption in a way where judgment and mercy are woven together. And we see the same thing here in this tension where God hears the cries for justice from the innocent, yet he's merciful to the sinner. So how can it be that God will execute justice and judge the evil in this world while being merciful to those who do that very evil? He gives us a better brother. He gives us one who says, I will be my brother's keeper. I will protect them. And it's the cross where we see this judgment and mercy woven and braided finally together, where Jesus receives the full, unmitigated judgment of God for the evil and injustice of sin in this world and in our hearts so that the world may know that he is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Jesus took the place of the fugitive, so that he might make them his family, his brother. And Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because where Abel's blood cried out for justice, the blood of Jesus cries out for grace. Grace. And that grace is far more than just forgiveness. It's also power over sin and evil, and it's yours. Because Hebrews also tells us to draw near to Jesus, our brother who was tempted in every single way that we are, yet he overcame evil every single time. It says to draw near to him and to his throne of grace so that we may find grace in our time of need. So what's that telling you? 
I'm telling you that this week, as you sense yourself being circled and hunted by sin, remember the one who jumps in the foxhole with you. Remember Christ, your brother, who promises to be your keeper. Is it worth his life? Or will you allow him to be your life? For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.